Welcome to episode number six of Champ We Are United, the podcast which takes you back to the heyday of British comics and a particular focus on football. And in the studio with us tonight, we have a regular team of Ridders. Hello. And also Gull. Hello there. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome onto the show this evening uh, a man who is very much a legend of the British comics industry over the past 60 years. Also, quite incredible. And that is Mr. Barry Tomlinson. Good evening, Barry. Greetings. It's very nice to be called a legend. <laughs> and absolutely true. Yes, so really thankful um, you've, you've given up some time to speak to us tonight, Barry, about different aspects of your own career in the industry. And if I could take you back to your time of national service, and I believe you, you started drawing a comic strip in what became the Anti-Trombone League, is that right? Well, I wasn't drawing it. I, I was the editor of the magazine, which was founded via the Anti-Trombone League. I was in the army and there was a guy who was playing his trombone day and night, practicing away. And I said, well, I think we should form an Anti-Trombone League. So I dashed around the barracks and got lots of people to sign a petition. Then someone said to me, why don't you have a magazine based on this? And this was my first experience of journalism. So I did a magazine. I had it um, duplicated on the army, old Gestetner printing equipment. And no one ever told me off for using it or using the army's paper, but I produced the magazine on a regular basis and it seemed to be quite popular. So that was my first introduction to journalism. So when I came out of my national service, I thought I'm gonna get a job in journalism. And I tried for almost a year and didn't succeed. Then one day I saw an advertisement which said, beginners wanted for children's comics. And not being a fanatic for comics or an expert at all, I applied for this job and was interviewed. And I got the job really, which was quite a surprise because I had no backup to my experience of comics. But uh, I got the job and uh, they started me off as assistant to the script editor, who was quite a famous gentleman called Ken Manel. He was a veteran of the Second World War, and he taught me the basics of script writing. So I didn't feel comfortable really as an assistant to the script editor. I really wanted to get involved in a publication. So they transferred me to Lion which was the first comic I worked on. Yes, and that was when, around 1961? 1961, I started, yes. Yeah. And you used a bit of your, your background there in, in military service in some of the early stories? Um, I didn't really, know. <laughs> no. I started afresh learning the business. Mm -hmm. The editor of Lion was a gentleman called Bernard Smith, and he taught me all the basics of being a good sub-editor and how the editor operated. 
And I always kept to his system throughout my time working on the comics. So I got lots of experience working with him. It was great fun online, but eventually I was transferred onto Tiger. And you took the decision to make Tiger a, a, a comic with a uh, focus on sports stories. Yes, it, when I went on to Tiger as a sub-editor, it was partly adventure stories and partly sport. So when I became editor of Tiger, I decided that I was going to change it to an all-sports comic. Of course, we had Roy the Rovers as the main story in Tiger, and it seemed fitting that the whole publication should be devoted to sports. That was very popular with children. So I changed it and it, it worked very well indeed. The circulation had a boost and uh, we did very well. Yes, and some fantastic stories in there, of course, um, and a whole range of, of sports from, from cricket and uh, Skid Solo, the, the racing driver. That's right. We, we inherited Skid Solo after a merger with Hurricane Comic. And uh, Skid Solo, written by Fred Baker, was a long-running story. And we decided, well, I decided that Skid should take part in all the, the Grands Prix throughout the season. So we always follow the date of each Grand Prix and make sure it seemed much more authentic by matching the date to how we produced it. But of course, sending the comics to the printer six weeks in advance meant we never really knew what was going to happen on the day. We always kept our fingers crossed that the race wasn't cancelled for some reason. Yes, yes, indeed. And you also had a, a female um, stock car racing character. We had um, a speedway star called Joe Talon. Um, Talon of the track was the yes. story we put into Tiger a little bit later on. Yes. But we did introduce a female into the story, which was into the comic, which was quite a big step forward in those days. Yeah. And and what were the, the circulation numbers like for Tiger in the, the 1960s? They were about 350,000 a week. Yeah, yeah. Good figures. Absolutely, absolutely. So really still well within the golden age of British comics. Oh yes, yes. I, I was very lucky to be an editor at the time of the, the golden age. Yeah. And uh, it was great fun producing comics and knowing they were going to sell reasonably well. And certainly Tiger, which had been going since 1954, was well established. And I was able to add to the popularity of the title. But a lot of it, I think I should pay tribute to the people that started Tiger in 1954. Derek Burnage was the first editor. And the first Roy the Rover story was written by Frank Pepper and illustrated by Joe Cohoon, very top of the market sort of contributors. And uh, boy, the Rovers lasted so long, I think really doing a great deal to the, what they put into it at the start. Very much so. And eventually the decision was made, of course, to, to split and, and for Roy of the Rovers to become its own publication. Yes, and the, the management has said to me that Tiger was going very well and they wanted me to produce a cricket publication. 
So I researched that very well and they sent me out to Australia to, with the England team. And I got to know the England team and I got to know various people in Australia who could contribute to the new cricket magazine. But when I came back, they said, we've changed our mind. It's not a cricket magazine. We want you to do a new football comic. So <laughs> all the cricket stuff was rather wasted, which is a shame really, because I, I do enjoy cricket and I was looking forward to producing a cricket publication. But now I had to do a football one. So they said to me, what are you going to call it? I said, well, Roy the Rovers. And they said, well, that's too long a title. And if you take Roy out of Tiger, what's going to happen to Tiger? Well, I was convinced that we could run Roy the Rovers as a separate comic and Tiger wouldn't suffer at all. But just to make sure we kept the Roy the Rovers story going in Tiger for a few months and had the story in Roy the Rovers as well, of course, written by the same writer. So we were able to link the two stories together and it worked very well. And gradually we took Roy out of Tiger, gave Roy his own publication got a great send-off for the first issue of Roy the Rovers because I persuaded Prince Philip to contribute to the first issue, which was quite a scoop for a children's comic. <laughs> so that, that gave it a boost when we launched it. And uh, we had a very good team producing the Roy the Rovers story and all the other football titles. So I sat down one day and worked out what all the other stories should be about. because We had eight football stories. So I wrote down all the ideas for them and they all seemed to go pretty well. We had a very good team of people drawing and writing the stories. Yeah. And one of the features of, of Roy of the Rovers is, as a publication from early on, there were free gifts given away, perhaps in the form of a, a Melchester rosette. Um, and you had quite a bit of success, I think, with that. Yes, I designed a couple of rosettes, one to give away in Tiger and one to give away in Roy the Rovers. And there were cut out letters that you could peel off and stick onto the rosette for your favorite team. It took a lot of working out to make sure we had enough letters to cover every team in the football league. But we managed to do that, even the Scottish ones as well. <laughs> Indeed, much appreciated by it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, that was that was that was great hearing about like the early days. That's that sounds like a really good time for comic books. You know, you were you knew they were going to sell. It's just it, we're just talking about this this halcyon days, and it's quite good that we got you on this our little podcast because there's a real juxtaposition in what we talk about in this podcast and and what you help to contribute in in those periods with with what's happening over the last couple of days in in football. You know, whereas we talk about football with, you know, fondness and nostalgia. And yet today I've heard football talked about in terms of franchising and branding and an NBA style format. I just wondered, as it's very topical at the moment, where do you sit with the last couple of days? It's, it's a far removed from what we like to talk about on here. <laughs> Yes, it is indeed. I think Mr. Roy Race would not be impressed by what's going on. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Roy is a great traditionalist, and I, I don't think he'd like this idea at all. Um, well, I don't either. So my, my view is always quite similar to Roy's. 
that might be a coincidence i'm not sure <laughs> yeah but it is um it's i say it, it's just so different to what we like to talk about on here it's um it's far removed from the nostalgia we like on here definitely you yes know, they, they, they were good days i think life was much more simple i think in those days yeah, um, yeah i have was, I have wonderful memories of going to the newsagent to go and get my broiler overs, uh, you know, putting over my 16p or whatever it was. And uh, yeah, it's a different, if it's a different age now, most definitely. Mm. Oh, yes. We, we, we always wanted people to put their comics on order at the newsagent so that we yeah. knew that they got a steady um, supply of copies every time. Mm. But yes, I'll get so many people talking to me now on Twitter, telling me about their trip to the news agent each week. And yeah. it's, it's lovely that people still remember that. Yeah, it's, it's really looked upon fondly, isn't it? We, yeah. is, you know, we, we do here, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a, not a bygone age, but it's a, a different way of doing things, isn't it? Compared to iPads and the technology, oh, yeah, I yes. guess. Yeah. It, yeah. it was a more simple age. Um, of course, well, the way we produced Roy the Rovers changed a bit. In, in the early days of Roy the Rovers, in episode one, Roy would say, right lads, we're going to win the FA Cup, try and win the FA Cup this year. And you knew full well that in the last instalment, they would win the FA Cup. So, but we introduced more realism into the stories that Melchester Rovers won matches and lost matches as well. Mm. So, and we gave Roy a life off the pitch as well as on the pitch which I think made him much more true to life. Yeah. Some of the, the particularly memorable stories and, and storylines in Roy of the Rovers, of course, everybody remembers Roy being shot, but also the drama of Penny uh, leaving Roy at one stage. Yes, and Roy getting shot got a lot of publicity, mm. but Penny yeah. leaving him produced much more publicity. The day that the issue came out when Penny left him, I was called in to be on ITN News at lunchtime and on BBC News in the evening. And every national newspaper carried the story. And it was great that there was so much feeling for Roy and his family <laughs> that uh, it was headline news and everybody treated it as a real life story. And uh, it made it much more effective, I think, that people treated it as a real thing. Yeah, very, very much so. And you think, you think part of the great appeal of um, Melchester as a team as well was, of course, we never knew where Melchester was located. And, and some people like to imagine it in the Midlands and others in London and some further north, I, I'd imagine. But, you know, it, it became the local team wherever that's you wanted right. it to be. Yes, that's what I always said, that Melchester Rovers was your local team. Go out your front door, and it's just down the road from you. It's wherever you want it to be. And, and that worked very well. Yes, I, it was, I always insisted we never gave, gave any clue where Melchester was. Mm. I mean, I didn't know it was my local team as well. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, during um, you know, your work with, with different comics, Tiger, I think in particular in the early 1970s and, and later in the 1980s with, with Roy of the Rovers, you, you certainly got to meet quite a few famous people. It was very good, yes. But when I took over as editor of Tiger, I introduced the Tiger Sports Star of the Year competition. 
And one of the first winners was Gordon Banks. So I traveled up to Stoke to present the trophy to him. And we were chatting away afterwards. And this was the guy that just won the World Cup for England. <laughs> Sorry to mention that. But <laughs> well, that's fine, Barry. <laughs> and I said to Gordon, what have you got going for you at the moment? He said, nothing. So off the top of my head, I said, would you like to write for Tiger? He said, well, I'd love to. And on the train back, I'm thinking, I've signed World Cup winning goalkeeper for Tiger. How can I afford it? Where can I put it in Tiger? So we had to drop one of the picture stories to, so we could get in the Gordon Banks articles. And they proved to be extraordinarily popular. And that was the start of using famous names within the titles. And then of course, after that, we signed Trevor Francis. And everybody we approached, if you mentioned Tiger or Roy the Rovers, they were always too happy to be part of the team. And that was, people said I had a great skill in recruiting people to write for Tiger and Roy and the other comics, but it was only because of the reputation the titles had. Yeah. People were pleased to write for them. And when, when for example, we signed Morecambe and Wise, we had Eric Morecambe writing for Roy the Rovers and Ernie Wise writing for Tiger. And that was just really due to the reputation of the comics that they were delighted to get involved. And famous people generally were happy, whether it was Prince Philip writing for the first issue or Morecambe and Rise writing for Tiger and Roy. People we asked just did it. And when, of course, when Roy was shot, I had to find a new manager. So I approached Sir Ralph Ramsey and he turned out to be a fan of Roy the Rovers and he was delighted that, to, be, to appear in the picture strip. We showed him the script every week and he never asked for any alterations. And we showed him the likeness that, had been, that we'd come up with and he was happy with that. So all the weeks he appeared in Roy the Rovers, there was no problems at all. And of course, he did quite well as Melchester manager because under Sir Alf, Melchester Rovers won 14-0, which is the highest scoreline in first division history. And we played the sound of the crowd cheering those goals. And that awoke Roy from his coma, where he was coma, yeah. in coma since being shot. <laughs> yes, very much more goal. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions uh, about some different things. Uh, one, a little bit more obscure. And that was, um, I think, but one of the things I'm really a big fan of is uh, Scream and the 13th Floor. And of course, you were one of the editors of Scream uh, back in the 80s. Uh, it ran for 15 issues. Um, yeah. Again, what, what, I know you remember this. Uh, what, what are your memories of, of that? Um, I can remember that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, well, previously I'd produced comics which were very much a family buy and Scream was something a bit different. The management wanted to do a mild version of a horror comic and they asked me to produce it. It was a very difficult one to produce because it was a big publishing house and I had to make sure it wasn't too scary. But we produced it and we got a good reaction from the readers, but it was within the publishing house that we had problems. 
it was very heavily censored after I produced issue after issue and each issue was really torn apart because I thought it was a bit too strong. Yeah. And then the um, strike came along, which took a lot of the comics off the book stands for a few weeks. Yeah. And the management took the opportunity of scrapping Scream at that time with a great sigh of relief, I think. But I certainly enjoyed editing Scream, stories like The 13th Floor and all the other stories, the Dracula story. Yeah. We were very lucky to have a good team of contributors, good writers and good artists. And uh, I think it should have lasted much longer. It's very good that people still remember it, even though it had a very short life. And you mentioned the 13th floor. That was one of your particular favourites. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And really, really. Go yeah, on, it's been go great. on. It's been great to see it republished in recent times. Yes, Rebellion um, republished it. And of course, once Scream finished, that story went into Eagle. Eagle. Yeah took the screen merger and uh, that was one of the stories that carried on but yeah screen i think was a good publication and i wish it had lasted longer i think it's held in high regard uh, the 15 original issues i mean you can't really get them on auction sites for anything less than 100 pounds nowadays they're very very collectible and um, it's good that they're being re reprinted in Rebellion for those that might not have read the whole story. I think we're waiting for volume three to come out. But yeah, like I said, I absolutely love the 13th floor. Yeah, it's very good. It still looks good now. Nowadays, it hasn't dated at all. No. No, absolutely loved it. And then eventually you moved on, Barry, to work on Skoda, of course. I'm, I'm what, sorry? You, you moved on to work on the scorer strip. That's right, yeah, when I gave up the comics, or when the comics gave up me, because um, around about the 1980, something like that, I decided I would form my own editorial company, and I asked the management if I could produce the comics from home, and that all my editors, I was the group editor by that time, and I would go freelance and all my editors would go freelance and we produced the comics from home and at a much cheaper level than in the big publishing house. And they thought that was a great idea. So I did that. But within just over a year, a new publisher, publishers took over the company and they didn't like the idea at all of comics being produced from home. They wanted to come in in the morning and see people working away at their desks on the comics. So one by one, the comics were taken away from me and I didn't have anything left at all. But very fortunately, just at that moment, the Daily Mirror approached me and asked me if I'd produce a new football story for them. So the score was the answer. And fortunately, score lasted 22 years, six days a week. And it started off as a single strip, then became a double strip. And then in the end, it was three strips. And uh, so in colour and it, it moved with the times and that we always tried to make the football content tie in with what was happening in real life. But it was a bit of a naughty script as well. I mean, the hero had a series of girlfriends and one in particular. And, uh, it was a bit <laughs> naughty. I don't think you could do it nowadays. 
No. No, no. I think we gave the Daily Mirror a few headaches. <laughs> so in the end, I formed two fan clubs. I, I produced the Scorer fan club and also the Ulrika fan club, which was the name of Dave's girlfriend. And very quickly, her fan club became more popular than the heroes, which was slightly <laughs> embarrassing. Um, her fan club was mainly dealing with pin-up pitches and so on, whereas Dave Story, the hero of the score, his fan club was all football. But it did get overtaken by Eureka eventually, and she, she was very popular. But uh, after 22 years and 6,000 episodes, uh, it came to a full stop. Yeah. 6,000 episodes is amazing, though. That's a hell of a run, hell of a run. Yes, it was, it was very enjoyable to do because uh, the combination of football and glamour seemed to work pretty well. And we had some, I had some very good artists working on it. Um, yeah. Barry Mitchell was the first one. Yeah. And John Gillett took over. And then eventually David Skew. And they were all artists I'd worked with on the comics, so we knew each other very well. And then we had David Pugh coming in to do the computer colouring. So it was the old team reformed again. That was great fun. Yeah. I must say, going back to something I said earlier, I spent so many years thinking one thing, and of course it was Barry Mitchell that did the illustrations for Napa Goes for Goal. I mean, oh, it's a right. schoolboy error by me, of course, but I spent so many years thinking it was, well, Barry Tomlinson. <laughs> but here we are, yeah, it was Barry Mitchell, of course, oh, so I apologise. <laughs> it's not me getting a bit sort of absent-minded then. No, I was a writer, not yeah, an course. illustrator, yeah. <laughs> I wrote a lot of scripts for the comic and really enjoyed writing, sure. writing scripts. Um, and I knew that. I knew that. So why I've spent so many years thinking that that was you, I have no idea. Somebody once said to me, why is it you write so many scripts for your comics? And I said, well, my policy has always been to employ the very best script writers. Yeah. <laughs> I accepted that. <laughs> right. Right, right. Do you think? Do you think there's any possibility of a, a scorer collection being published? Yeah, I was going to ask that too. No, I've heard nothing about that at all. I've had no contact with the newspaper since I stopped contributing. Yeah. So uh, I, I think it might be very difficult. I think the content is probably out of date now. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bit sexy. Yeah, that's true. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It would, be, it would be difficult where to market it, really, of course, as a complete collection, really, in this day and age. Yes, I mean, it, it would be difficult. The Royal the Rovers um, appeared in two national newspapers. It appeared, first of all, in Today newspaper, when it was in colour, and later on it was in the Daily Star. So these sort of strips, the voice strip does easily transfer to a newspaper. Yeah. And it was good to see it in a different version. We did a slightly more adult version in the newspapers. And I wrote yeah. one that was in today newspaper. And that was, I say, good fun to do because we could take Roy to different areas we couldn't necessarily show in the comic. And they were collected in uh, a, a, a 
collection, the Today Strips, uh, which I've got in my collection. But yeah, they were slightly different, but a, a nice addition to the collection anyhow. Yes, that was um, drawn by Kim Raymond. Right. And what, what do you think of the, the recent sort of relaunch of Roy of the Rovers by Rebellion? With, with the mixture of the, the, co the comic strip one you know one one edition and then it goes to a, a novel style for the next one yes it's um it's very well produced mm -hmm. it's very different to what we produced but things have to change you know you have to update the way you present things when we relaunched eagle in 1982 people said to us it's not at all like it used to be and my stock answer was always, well, we're producing it for today's readership rather than the 1950s readership. And of course, the same thing now applies to Roy of the Rovers. It may not appear, may not appeal to some of the people that remember the story from the early days, but it's, it's a modern version. That They're very enthusiastic about it. And uh, I look on as an onlooker, sometimes wish I could be more involved in it, but uh, I'm not involved. So I'm, I'm just looking at it and uh, seeing how they produce it. And I think yeah, they're, they're doing a good job. Sure. That is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, just sort of going back to what you were talking about, you know, having seen your work, you know, Roy of the Rovers, seeing it rebooted. Does, does, does that please you? It's like, I mean, th this legacy isn't just till now this legacy is going on into the future as well that, that must be really pleasing yes it's very good that rebellion are producing a new a new boy of the rovers but they're also reprinting some of the original stories so yeah. it's, it's it's good to see them come out and be, be produced so well that yeah, the yeah. artwork looks yeah. as good or even better now than it did originally so it's nice to see the two versions of it side by side yeah and it's that kind of legacy that well, you know, in modern society now, we say a real Roy of the Rovers moment. You know, that, these real kinds Roy of stock and trade. Stuff, yes. Yeah, and it's that must be really nice. Because that's a real... to be the title of my book. Yes, of course, yes. That's, yeah, that's the real Roy of the Rovers stuff, which is a story of Roy's life and how I worked on him. If you pardon the expression, how I worked with him <laughs> over the years. Yeah. Yeah. But that must be, that must be really pleasing. Yes, it's good to get it all down in yeah. writing. Because there, there's been quite a few books about Roy, and I read them and wasn't too impressed because some, a lot of the facts were wrong and the way it was presented wasn't Roy the Rover stuff at all. So I had to bring a book out called Real Roy the Rover Stuff. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the, the real story of Roy, where you find out what happened behind the scenes. Yeah. And as I like the way you say you worked with him. Well, you really did because there's loads of pictures of you with Roy, with the with the celebrity in question. <laughs> oh, yes, you know. we, we, we took this um, cardboard cutout of Roy to so many different places and stuffed it alongside various people. Um, Roy's posed with so many people like Sir Bobby Robson. We were at, yeah. we were at an England training session and... Uh, we asked Bobby Robson if he'd pose with Roy. He said, yes, on one condition that I'm not touching him at all. So we had to have a little gap between the two of them. 
<laughs> at that England training session, we took the cutout down to the touchline to watch a practice match going on. And one of the um, England staff came up to me and said, there's more life in your cardboard cutout than there is in some of the England's players. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Which is a lovely quote to have, I think. Yes, absolutely. My personal favourite cardboard cutout moment on the cover, just personal, uh, it was uh, Roy with Suzanne Dando, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was, a, she was a very good fan of the comics. Um, yeah. I first met her when she used to come into the office representing a photo agency and she'd yeah. bring in photographs for us to buy to use in the publication. And then as she became more famous from, for her television work and her sporting work that uh, Roy posed with her. And uh, I'm still in touch with her. So it, it, it was... Oh, wow. She was a good fan of the comics and uh, it worked well. And I produced the uh, Suzanne Dando Annual, which was a one-off annual we produced. And that was great fun as well, because it was something a bit different from the comics. Yeah. It was always interesting when, to have, sorry to interrupt there, Rap. It was always interesting when you had those cardboard cutout covers. You thought, oh, this is something special. What's this all about then? I really, really loved them. Yes, it was lovely that we got um, lots of famous people to agree to pose. And in the end, I got about six sports photographers to take a cutout with them wherever they went. So there was always the opportunity of thrusting the cutout <laughs> into some <laughs> poor celebrity's hands. I must, I must ask you, Barry, um, you mentioned the, the annual uh, with Suzanne Daniel, Dando there. I uh, one of my own heroes of the past, Big Daddy, who I had the, the pleasure of seeing uh, wrestle giant haystacks way back in, in the day. Um, and I, I know you brought out a, a Big Daddy annual. Um, what was what was the man himself like to work with? He was wonderful to work with. It was wonderful doing features with him because he was so popular. And if you walked down the street with him, people came up to him and chatted to him. And he always had time for people. Uh, the only minus to my association with Big Daddy was I gave him a lift in my car once. And the front passenger seat was never the same again after that. <laughs> <laughs> but we did two annuals um, together. It also, of course, he appeared in Tiger on a regular basis, wrestling against Johnny Cougar. And that was a draw, wasn't it? It was a draw, yes. And talking about his contests with giant haystacks, I took some photographs from the ringside of the two of them fighting each other. And it was a terrifying thing to be right alongside with these huge bodies hurtling and crashing <laughs> right in front of me. And I was terrified one was going to land on me. <laughs> I was just going to say, whatever noise that was in the background, a vehicle, vehicle going by, I think that was Skid Solo making a... A cameo appearance. <laughs> Just getting his, his point across. He's still around. Yes. <laughs> one of the most, another one of the iconic covers was when uh, um, Hot Shot merged with Roy the Rovers. I was also a big fan of Hot Shot and collected all of those. Um, yeah, I love the cover with Roy shaking hands with Gary in his England strip. 
uh, that stands out for me as well. Yes, I mean, the hotshot Hamish story, I think, was absolutely brilliant. Written by Fred Baker, he got so much humour into the story. And it was great that we paired him with an Argentinian artist called uh, Schiaffino. And there you had an English writer and an artist from Argentina doing a story about Scotland. Yeah. And uh, it came across very well, I think. Oh, it did. It did very much. And what was, what was it like then in pre-internet days managing to get the, the work passed across from Argentina? Um, it was, it, we had the scripts written. I mean, when the, war, the Falklands War was on, it was extraordinarily difficult. We had the scripts translated in Italy and sent from Italy to Brazil and then from Brazil to Argentina. And the artwork came back the same way. So it took quite a while, but I think we only lost one issue. Right. And they kept it going. And it's also nice that Fred Baker, the writer, and Schiaffino, the artist, um, they drew this, they were involved in the story for years and years and years, and they had never met each other. They only met each other once, and that was in my office. And it was a wonderful moment. When, when they got together for the first time, immediately, because they'd worked together for so long, they became instant friends, and it was nice to be there to see that happen. <laughs> but what did you think of the hotshot story then, with the, the Scottish backgrounds and Daddy and Muck Muck? I, I loved the story, yeah, right from right from the get-go. Um, I did, I always enjoyed hotshot either. Yeah, he's an endearing and enduring character. <laughs> I, also, I also liked it when uh, he went into Hotshot Hamish and Mighty Mouse, uh, the, the, the two of them in the same strip. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Once again, the artist got the humour across really well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you could, it's easy to write a script, but then you've got to get an artist who can interpret it as you want to. Yeah. I, mean, I did a story called The Hard Man. In of course. the Rovers, and uh, that started quite normally. They were quite normal players, and nothing extraordinary was happening. But the artist Doug Max did, who was an Australian artist who lived in this country, he started to put humour into it, and that inspired me to take the script in a different direction. There was a character called Victor Boscovic, who was the manager of Danefield United, the team that appeared in the Hard Man story. And he made this character so brilliant that I operated the script in a different way because of his artwork. And eventually Victor almost took over the story. Yeah. A tremendous character, Victor, yeah. Yeah, we talked about Victor uh, in previous podcast episodes. Uh, yeah, a very much loved character on our forum. Uh, yeah. He'd, he'd be so proud, he'd probably faint with embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were pushed to, to name your favourite character um, from all the, the, the various titles you've worked with, apart from Roy Race, perhaps. Very, very difficult. Do you mean the actual story characters? Yeah, yeah. So many, really. I enjoyed writing the Johnny Cougar script. Mm. I enjoyed the Hard Man script. I mean, I did that long series of Death Wish stories. Yeah. 
which started in speed, then went into tiger, then into eagle after that. Each one was different in its way, but uh, really any, any script that I wrote <laughs> was always my favorite because I got so much involved with the script and the characters that they became very real to me. And looking at, at some of the titles which are still around, I know you were involved with 2000 AD. Um, what, what would you say is the reason for its continued success? So it should be an easy question to answer, shouldn't it, really? It, it broke new barriers, I think, the way it was presented. Um, 2018 was only part of my group very briefly. There was a football magazine called Top Soccer, which the, the management asked me to produce. So I did a dummy for it and was really all ready to go with it. And I was called into the management and told, you're not going to do that anymore, which was a bit of a blow to me. So they looked at a way to soften the blow. So they gave me 2000 AD and battle to compensate for that. But by that time, 2000 AD was going so well under editor Steve McManus that I didn't really get too involved with it as a group editor. I observed and made comments occasionally, but uh, it was going well. So don't interfere with something that's going really well. But very powerful publication, and I think it's a great compliment to everybody involved in it. It's still going strong. Yeah, still very, very popular. Hmm. What else? Um, yeah, you just touched on script writing and story editing before. Um, when when you needed a story or you required a story for a publication you would come up with the ideas on your own or did you consult with people or, or did a day ever come when someone brought a story to you and you were like, well, that's that, that's it. How, how did it formulate? It was mostly myself that would come up with an idea. Hmm. Occasionally I would, um, well, I'd come up with the idea first and decide who was going to write it and have a meeting with a script writer. And, uh, we tossed the idea around a bit. Very occasionally the scriptwriter would come to us with an, an idea which we'd use, but I tended to originate things myself, which is probably a bit selfish, but uh, I enjoy doing that. I could come up with the ideas. And uh, yeah. once we got some ideas, I'd sit down with, with the scriptwriter and uh, talk it through and come up with plans. For example, Tom Tully was the writer of Roy the Rovers and lots of other stories as well. And he would come up to the office probably about every six weeks and we'd sit in my office and have a chat for the storylines, work out what was going to happen to Roy. And after we'd done that, we'd go out to lunch. And in those days, lunches were very long. And uh, we'd carry on the conversation over lunch and people tended to think that we were just wasting time eating and drinking over a long, long lunch time. But uh, <laughs> lots of good ideas came over those lunches. You could relax a lot and talk things through. And uh, I was a great fan of long business lunches. 
a chance to be creative. <laughs> yes, indeed. I don't think the, those things really hap happen these days. Mm. Yeah. And were the, the ideas that did you use to storyboard them, or would they be all handwritten? What was your What was your process for that? I'd just write out a few paragraphs with an idea, and then mm. talk to the artist, talk talk to the author about it. Quite often, I was persuaded to write the script myself. So I, I did write a lot of scripts as well as mm. editing. Yeah. And that seemed to work all right as well. Yeah. I, as I said, I did The Hard Man and Johnny Cougar and Death Wish. I wrote the voice strip for Today newspaper and score for 22 years. And of course, there were stories in Wildcat, if you remember the title yeah. Wildcat. Which yeah. Wasn't over very long. It's one of the last titles I launched. I think that was a very good title again, yes. but it, it didn't last very long. It came at a time when the comics were under pressure for their circulation. But Wildcat had good writers, it had good artists, and uh, it's good that Rebellion are publishing, republishing part of that, some of those stories now. Mm. The Turbo Jones story has been reprinted, and also the Loner story, which still look good, I think. And the Dracula um, files as well. Yes, yes, that, that Eric Bradbury's artwork, very strong, very good artwork indeed. Yeah, definitely. Well, Barry, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for your, your time this evening. So many fantastic memories, um, I think, for, for all of us, certainly on the panel tonight. Um, you know, such varied, such fantastic work that you've been involved in over over all these years. So, so thank you uh, very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I was almost an artist at one time. But good talking to you. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Barry. Thanks, okay. Barry. Thank, yeah, thank, thank you, Barry. Thanks Bye very now. much. Take care, mate. Thank you.